Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to all of our many guests and folks I've known for many years that have joined us today. And welcome to our guests. Please welcome to join us and thank you for being here. Thank you for the special music and the, the uh, uh, spiritual song that we sang. As we heard in the introduction, this message is about the true gospel. When we consider the word gospel, it is a religious word that when you break it down means good news. Many of you already know that. And it forms the centerpiece of the New Testament. In fact, in our, in our lingo, the first four books of the Bible are known as the Gospels. If I were to ask you to write down, we won't ask for a, a, a verbal exchange here, but just write down in your own words, how would you define the Gospel in five words or less? The Gospel, what, in five words or less? There are many ways that the New Testament describes it. So as we begin here, let's go through them and see if how you, write, how you would write it down if any of these would apply to or would match up with what you wrote down. Let's start in Romans chapter 15. The first five or ten minutes here we'll be flipping fairly quickly through a bunch of scriptures. We will slow that down as we proceed through the message. <clears throat> Romans 15. pick it up in verse 14. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you are also full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace God grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, ministering the gospel of God. So here in Rome, to the Romans, Paul describes it as the gospel of God. Let's flip forward to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Let's start in verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. So here, to the Corinthians, Paul describes it as the gospel of Christ. You don't need to turn there, but for instance, the introduction to the gospel of Mark talks about that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here, Paul calls it the gospel of Christ. Back to Romans, Romans chapter 1. And again, well, as I mentioned, we'll flip fairly quickly through here a bunch of scriptures just by way of introduction. Romans chapter 1, verse 8. First, it's Romans 1, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. So again, a, a takeoff of what we just read about the gospel of, of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ here. It's the gospel of God's Son. 
Matthew 24. Matthew 24. Those of you who are longtime members of the faith could probably recite this with me. Verse 14, Matthew 24. And this gospel, I'll wait for you to turn there, sorry. Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. So now not just, it's not just a gospel of, of a person or a personage or a being, but now it's being described here as the gospel of the kingdom. Let's go to Acts 20. Acts 20. Let's start in verse 22 of Acts 20. And see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy, and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So now it's not just the gospel of God, but here he describes it as the Luke here describes it as the gospel of the grace of God. Second Corinthians chapter four. Second Corinthians chapter four. We just have three more after this. Second Corinthians chapter four. Verse three. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So now we hear it described as the gospel of the glory of Christ. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Embedded within what we know to be the armor of God, one of the tools, one of the pieces of the armor is found in verse 15. And we know that as, and that's Ephesians 6, verse 15, having your shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So here the gospel is described as the gospel of peace. Revelation 14 Revelation 14. Verse 6. Revelation 14 and verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. Here it's described as the eternal or the everlasting gospel. Now finally, let's go back to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Verse 6. Galatians 1 and in verse 6. I marvel 
that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Here we have the, a different gospel described, and we have turning away from the gospel of the grace of Christ. So what is it? The gospel of God, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of his son, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the grace of God, the gospel of the glory of Christ, the gospel of peace, the everlasting gospel, or the gospel of the grace of Christ. Did any of you, no need to raise your hands, but uh, did any of you use any of those above listed terms? Is it the gospel of Christ? Is it the gospel of salvation? Is it the gospel of the kingdom of God? Doesn't matter which one it is. Doesn't matter which one it is. This afternoon, what I would like to do is to delve into one of our most fundamental doctrines. We have a varied mix here with us today. Many longtime folks who have been in the faith for many, many years. Many youth who have grown up in the faith under the guise of their parents, under the guidance of their parents. Some who have made it their own. We have some young families. We have some new folks who are new on this journey within the last number of months, weeks, years. In our quest to grow in the grace and knowledge of God and our Lord and Savior, sometimes it's important to review our basic doctrines so that we know what they are, so that we're sure of what they are, and that we can explain them to ourselves and to others. So over the course of time, we will intermix in our messages the ability to cover some of these basic doctrines. Today, what I would like to look at is what is the true gospel, what it is, what it isn't, why it is important to know, and how knowing this should affect our day-to-day lives on how, in how we, we walk this journey. So let's answer those questions today. I gave you the English meaning of the word gospel, meaning good news. The Greek word for gospel, for those of you who use Strong's, it's 2098, and it is the Greek word, apologize for the pronunciation, euagelion, euagelion, is it euangelion, euangelion, okay, thank you, euangelion, and it means good news, good news. The root word that it comes from is 2097, euangelizo, and I'm sure I've botched that too, but euangelizo, and it's the verb that means to bring good news or to announce glad tidings. So before it became associated with the gospel of God, people who were criers for the king were gospelizers. They were announced good, good news. When we uh, have our announcements here and have something, uh, a, a marriage, a birth announcement, a baptized announcement, that is announcing good news. That, in essence, is gospelizing. But it, according to, it has been adopted into the Christian faith by being this, this gospel of something. Is it the gospel of God, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of grace? the gospel of the glory of Christ. 
in Scripture, it has become specifically used in reference to the message of God that Christ brought with him to teach. So why don't we go to the beginning of Christ's ministry and begin there? As we find out what this gospel is, let's go back to the the beginning of the ministry of Christ and begin there. Let's go to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. And we see here John's preparatory message for Christ's ministry. Obviously, linking back to the prophet Malachi, 400 years before this, before God went silent. And we see here, Christ calls, we know that Christ called John the Baptist, the fulfillment of the prophet Elijah. In those days... John the Baptist, came, this is verse 1, Matthew chapter 3, came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. So here, John is announcing this message that someone is going to come and that it is a, this kingdom of heaven is at hand. This kingdom of heaven is near. Dropping down to verse 11. He continues, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So we can see how gospel the the bringing of the gospel is the announcing of good news here john the baptist is saying repent for this kingdom is near this kingdom is near and i'm not bringing it there's someone coming far greater than me and i'm gonna i can i can be here and baptize through god's power but who's coming after me he's bringing this holy spirit these are new concepts And we can see how this gospel really means, gospelizing here really means to bring and announce good news. Not long after this, in Matthew chapter 4, this one that John the Baptist was introducing, the one we know as the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, began his ministry with the same words. Verse 17 of Matthew chapter 4. After he went through his 40-day fast and being tempted by Satan. He began his ministry in verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The same message that John the Baptist was introducing, the kingdom of heaven. Both of them introduced requirements for participation, where they introduced this concept of repentance. The kingdom is coming. You need to repent to be able to participate in it. So they introduced requirements for participation. Both when you when you when you consider how they announce this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Looking back from our perspective, having seen the whole story, it seems to me like both seem to be talking about something that the listeners were already anticipating. This kingdom 
the, the fact that there was a kingdom coming wasn't new. Wasn't something that they weren't aware of. But the good news was that it was near. And that's what they were coming to announce. And when we consider what they knew from their Hebrew scriptures about a kingdom that wasn't of this world. This goes all the way back to creation. We can think of, and we don't have time to cover all of this, but we can consider the entire timeline of the Old Testament and see how the kingdom, this kingdom that was not of this world, was at the foundation of much of what God was, what God was talking about through his scriptures. That man was created to have dominion over the whole earth. Dominion is a power word. It's a regal word. The leader of the, the ruling party or the ruling faction of a nation has dominion. That is, that, is, that is a regal word, dominion. Our nation for 120 or 30 years was called the dominion. I don't believe we're called the dominion anymore, but we were called a, a dominion. Then God proceeds to raise up a people through Abraham, through the, a covenant with Abraham, by which the entire world would be blessed, first through Israel, then through the church, spiritual Israel. But let's look at a few prophecies of what the folks that John the Baptist and Christ would have been preaching to would have made a connection with when they said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's go first to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Verse 6, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. And upon the throne of David, who at this point of this writing is dead, upon the throne of David, and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So Isaiah is writing, and we know that Christ pulled out the, the scroll of Isaiah in, in, the, in the temple when he, when he preached. And the folks that John the Baptist and, and Jesus would have been preaching to, they would have known this. And here, Isaiah is writing about this time when this kingdom will be ruled by David. David will be one of the kings of the kingdom. But he's dead. Everybody knows he's dead. But something is coming where David will be the king of this kingdom. That will never end. Ezekiel 37. Let's go to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 37. Verse 21, verse 21. Then say to them, Ezekiel 37, verse 21. Then say to them, thus says the Lord God, surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side 
and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land and on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people and I will be their God. And David, my servant, shall be king over them. And they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. But he's dead. But he shall be their prince in this kingdom forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. And there shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. So again, these concepts, while, they're, while they are, are at the, the, the whim of the, those who have them in, in, in persecution and at, at this point in time when, the, when these are being written. They're looking forward to, they're being taught about this kingdom that will be forever, where their former kings who are long dead will, will all of a sudden be alive again, and they will, be, they will live forever. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. And again, here for time's sake, we will cut into this story and read just verse 44. But this is part of Daniel's explanation of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the many kingdoms, the Babylonian, the uh, Medo-Persian, the Greco-Macedonian, and the Roman empires that we know were prophesied here through the dream of Nebuchadnezzar by God, through Dan, explained by Daniel. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So these are folks, when they're understanding their history, see kingdoms rise and fall. Kingdoms rise and fall throughout history. They may last for decades or centuries, but at some point, every kingdom has fallen. And here, to this great kingdom of Babylon, God is telling them that there will be a kingdom that shall never fall. Daniel chapter 6, one last verse here before we move on. Later on in the story of Daniel, we come upon King Darius. And here, just in one part of his decree, verse 26, I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. 
So we consider that John the Baptist and Christ, when they were starting their ministries, talked about repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what the people, the Jews, would have been looking back on. This kingdom that was promised, that all, of the, all that they went through from the, the period of being called out from captivity in Egypt, all through the timeline of the Old Testament, through the period of the judges, period of where their kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, was in power, to when they were uh, uh, not in power and in captivity to the Assyrians and to the Babylonians. Throughout all that history, Christ is saying, this kingdom is at hand. This kingdom is near. This is what I came to preach. And this teaching of the kingdom of God becomes his central teaching point throughout his ministry. Note the number of parables, and we'll get to one later, that begin with, the kingdom of heaven is like. Because he was here to teach about what this kingdom, that he, the very first sentence that he talked about, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, this is what it will be like. Because they had a whole history of being either in power or under other powers of what kingdoms could be like. And what we see from what was prophesied, it will be a kingdom like no other. John chapter 3. Again, by way of reminder, when John the Baptist and Christ first introduced their ministries, they introduced this concept of repentance. That there was going to be a requirement or requirements to be part of this kingdom. And here, John chapter 3 and verse 3, we see another requirement introduced. Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, this of course is to Nicodemus. Let's go back and get the context. Verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no, other, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless there is a change in us, unless we repent and change who we are and put on a new man, and he goes on to explain what this begotten or becoming an heir of God is, this genao, the Greek word genao here. He goes on to explain that here. But the point of this message here is, again, it revolves around this concept of the kingdom and another requirement that we can't, be, we can't partake of the kingdom in the current state as we are, in this sinful, fleshly state that we are. So in addition to repentance, we must become a new person. We must become a new man. But it all revolves around this central message of the kingdom. Why repent? Why become born again? as it is written here in this version, so that we can become part of this kingdom of God. And the effects of this message are, are his, this being part of his central teaching, we can see the effects of this being part of his central teaching. Let's go to Luke 24. Let's skip through his ministry and come to the end.
and see what the effects of his ministry and his teaching being about the kingdom of God, what kind of effects this had on the people. Luke 24, verse 18. This is about the after his resurrection. He's walking along the same road with these two folks who are walking back to Emmaus. And they're having this conversation. Verse 13, now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they, were, that while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know it was him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? So obviously playing a little coy here. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. That's what he had spoken to them for three and a half years, this ministry. And by the end of it, they still thought he was coming to bring this kingdom. That's how central to their focus this kingdom of God, this kingdom of heaven was. That at the end of all of his teaching, and we see, uh, we see the various places to, to the disciples where he said, have you not been listening to what I've been saying? And still at the end of this, his followers, like Cleopas here, said, we still thought it was him. We still thought he was bringing the kingdom to us now. Not just Cleopas, but let's go to Acts chapter 1. And his very disciples that became the apostles. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water. Going back to what we read in Matthew 3. But you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit and not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, so they'd gotten through, remember, they'd gotten through his ministry, his crucifixion, which really shook them. Now they're ecstatic that he's, they, they, have witnessed, they have witnessed him alive again. And they asked him, saying, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it now? That's their entire focus was around this kingdom. They thought he was first coming to do it. Okay, we can. Okay, it's been three and a half years. We we get it. He's been teaching us. There has to be this sort of crucifixion and, and sacrifice of sorts. So we're we're a little shaken by this, but we're ecstatic. Okay, he's he's alive now. Okay, it's now. It has to be now because that's what the it, that's what we've all been looking forward to. Is it now, Lord? That was their focus. So we can see the effects of his teaching being around the kingdom of God. That's what they were focused on. They were human, and they, everything's about, to human beings, everything's about the here and now. So their focus was, this kingdom has to be, this has to be it now. There, what, what else can he be waiting for? Let's move on to talk about these many facets of the gospel. We read through nine different scriptures that talked about how the God, it was described as the gospel of God, the gospel of Christ, 
the gospel of his son, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the grace of Christ, the gospel of the glory of God, the gospel of the glory of Christ, the gospel of peace, all of those that we had talked about. We see how Christ's message centered completely around the kingdom of God. But as he talked about this kingdom of God, both Christ and John the Baptist introduced terms like repentance, becoming a new person, baptism, as facets of this, this entire concept of this kingdom of God. And we saw how, in those nine references, how we reference the various letters of Paul to see the different descriptions of the gospel. We've renumerated re- 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 them a few times here this afternoon already. But if you need one passage to really explain the entirety of the gospel message, there may be several, but we're going to look at one here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So let's go there and see how these many descriptions that we read from the pen of Paul and in a couple of cases, Christ himself and Luke are encapsulated together as Paul describes this, this entire concept here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll pick it up. We'll start in verse 1. But as we read through it, almost make a mental checklist of everything that we talked about, those first nine things and other, other concepts that we'll read through here. Moreover, brethren, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1, I declare to you the gospel. So I'm saying it again, the good news. Which I preach to you, which you also received and in which you stand, and by which you were also saved by which you are saved if you hold fast that word which i preach to you unless you believed in vain see my, my purpose here isn't to really dissect first corinthians 15 we don't have time for that but just as we walk through here notice the different concepts for i delivered to you first of all that which i received that christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that's a second facet to fulfill prophecy according to the Hebrew scriptures, that Christ died for our sins and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So this was, again, continuing to focus that this isn't a New Testament concept. This is a biblical concept from the, Old Test- from the Hebrew scriptures that pointed to this very, these, these very facts. And that he was seen again by Cephas, then by the twelve. And that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. But some have fallen asleep. They didn't go to heaven. They have fallen asleep. Some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, another concept, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. So there are works after being called. He was saved. He said so. So the works didn't get him saved. But because he is saved, he's laboring. 
Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it is I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. So this concept of Christ's sacrifice in combination with his resurrection is a central teaching point of the gospel. Because if that didn't happen, we're all sitting here in vain. We might as well go home or have our coffee first, then go home and get on with getting on with life. Yes, he says in verse 15, and we also found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. Again, another concept of this gospel, that God can bring the dead back to life. That is our hope. If God can't bring us back to life, what hope do we have? For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. So again, the Christ's sacrifice and his resurrection help bring us out of our sins. So there's another concept and aspect to the gospel, that we come out of our sins. And if we're out of our sins, by extension, our, we, we can see how the concept of mercy and not being held accountable after we have repented for the, the ultimate penalty of death that they deserve. Verse 18, Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So again, another part of the gospel that we are only asleep. We're not, we haven't gone to hell for an eternal damnation. We're not up in heaven on a cloud. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So again, we're starting to now get into concepts of God's plan of salvation as depicted by the Holy Day season, which we are coming, apart, uh, coming up on. We're in the Feast of Weeks right now, week six, the end of week six. We're about to enter week seven of the, the count. Pentecost, a week from tomorrow. For as in Adam, so, sorry, verse 21, for since by man came death, by man capitalized Christ, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and after those who are Christ at his coming. So again, part of this gospel that we don't have to save the world now. Everybody is not, not condemned to, to eternal death if they don't get saved in this life. Because all have an order. There is a concept of firstfruits, not better fruits. Just by timing, first fruits, God's choice. So we see here how Paul encapsulates this gospel. He started off by calling it the gospel, reminding them that it's the same gospel he's always preached to them. And he conveys the very many aspects that we've covered, like salvation, death for our sins, being resurrected after the third day, witnessed by many. The saints are asleep, they're not in heaven. God's grace made this possible. Our hope is in the resurrected Christ. God has a plan to make this available to all people, but in his time, not in our specified time. 
an incredible summary of the gospel message that we can see encapsulates most of those things or all of those things that we talked about. The gospel of God, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of the glory of God, the gospel of the grace of Christ, the gospel of peace. We see all of those here encapsulated in Paul's nicely knit treatise here on the gospel. Verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. Why all of this? So that he can give the kingdom back to his Father. That was the message of the God. That is why there is grace. That is why Christ came to to sacrifice for himself, sacrifice himself for our sins. That is why God resurrected him. That is why we have all this hope. Good news for what? If Christ, and we'll get to that. Let me, let me stop and let me go back to, to here. Let's go back to verse 25 because we'll get to what I was going to say in a minute. Then comes the end when he delivers, verse 24 again. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to, the, to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. We're coming now to the end of this entire story. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. When he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Obviously talking about the Father. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So again, we see that all of this comes up like a, like a perfectly written story comes up to the climax that is the kingdom of God. And then it's the denouement down into what happens in this kingdom. Let me quote from the Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia. It summarizes the gospel in this way. The central truth of the gospel is that God has provided a way of salvation for men through the gift of his son to the world. He suffered as a sacrifice for sin, overcame death, and now offers a share in his triumph to all who will accept it. The gospel is good news because it is a gift of God, not something that must be earned by penance or by self-improvement. I can find nothing wrong in that statement, but it is incomplete. Yes, it was a gift that God gave of his son to this world. Yes, he suffered as a sacrifice for sin. He overcame death. And through this, God offers us the opportunity to share in his triumph. But share what? That's the point. That's the point that is missing. Share what? Do we sit on a cloud? Do we uh, exist in some ethereal form, just in some eternal state? Good news has to be good news of something. What does it lead to? That is what is missing in many concepts of the gospel when we don't include the kingdom of God as part of this. The kingdom of God is the destination. And we'll, get, we'll see a little bit here that about, about that in a few minutes. Others, besides Wycliffe, say that, the gospel, that Christ is the gospel. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Just back up a few pages. Same letter that we just read all about the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. But let's go back to the beginning here in chapter 2. And verse 1, And I, brethren, 
when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Does this mean that Christ is the gospel and we should only preach about him and salvation? Is that what Paul is talking about here? We just read what Paul meant by the gospel. He started out with this, that yes, it, it happened because Christ, God sent Christ, sacrificed him for our sins. He rose again, and we went through all of that. But that, Paul does not mean that Christ is the gospel. And we'll see that here as we go. He's an important part of the gospel. We're not, we're not downplaying the importance of Christ. Let me, and let me get to that. Paul here was addressing an issue, issues that were rear, rearing its head in Corinth and misunderstanding the gospel. So when we simply take out verse 2 and say all we're going to do is preach Christ and crucified, that is not giving full credence to what the entire gospel message is. Because when you read the entire letter, you get to understand that that started the process, but it is so much more than that. Matthew chapter 24. Let's go back there. As we talk about is Christ and or is salvation the gospel message. Matthew chapter 24. Here's another example of what they were looking for as we talked about a few minutes ago. Matthew 24, verse 3. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They wanted to know when the end was coming. When is the end coming? Why? Why would they want to know when the end was coming? Because their, their entire scriptural scrolls talk about that it means God's kingdom is going to be here. This kingdom that shall never be destroyed will be here. And, and we can go ahead. We won't take the time here, but we can go ahead and read the rest of the account. It talks about the lead up to this kingdom and Christ offering to them signs of what the end will be like before this kingdom, before he comes back a second time. And that's what the, the rest of Matthew 24 really is all about. Because it's based on their question in verse 3. When will this end come? Then immediately into chapter 25, he begins his teaching and says, The kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. The very first teaching after talking about these prophecies of the kingdom is what is it going to be like? Because they needed to know what what this kingdom is going to be like. Why would they give their lives up, their, their physical lives, to this piece of good news if they didn't know what they were giving it up for? They had to know what they were giving it up for. Why give up a great job and a great career and money and homes and fame for what? For Christ? I need to know what this Christ, what does it offer me? What, why Christ? Christ starts it, but why? The kingdom of God is the why. The kingdom of God is the why. Remember what the gospel is. It is good news. 
What is the good news? Is Christ the good news? Not of and by itself. It doesn't give us enough context. Why Christ? It's part of it. Salvation is part of it. But salvation for what? What are we saved for? What am I saved for? I might not like what I'm going to be saved for. So why would I? I need to know what I'm going to be saved for if I'm going to buy into this. Am I going to be saved to be in eternal damnation? Well, then, no thank you. Am I going to be saved to sit on a cloud for eternity and do nothing? I might give up sitting there doing nothing with no hope of, with no understanding to maybe have 70 years of pleasure in this life. I might choose that if I don't understand what, what, am, I, what am I giving this up for? The kingdom of God, and that's why he's describing what this kingdom of God is going to be like. Why, why give up your life and follow me? It's for this kingdom that I'm going to describe to you. You've heard it talked about by the prophets. I'm going to tell you what it's, what it's about. I'm going to tell you what my father and I have in mind for this end. It's based on going all the way back to Genesis 3. When they were, and we just referenced that, Genesis 3, 22 to 24. When they were kicked out of the garden, when they were kicked out of paradise, and we talked, covered that in our, our last sermon a little bit, that now it was, how do we get them back? Why do we want them back? We want them back because our plan is this kingdom. We want to share our glory. We want to share a family, make a family that shares in this glory, in this kingdom. We had it. They, they separated themselves from us. We had to, for their own protection, remove them temporarily. But now we're going to get them back because this kingdom is that important. John chapter 10. The role of Jesus Christ is central to the gospel. By no means have, is anything that I've said up to this point diminishing his role. In fact, we've seen in what we've read that it starts with Christ, his sacrifice, and it ends with him giving the kingdom back to his father and accepting us into his kingdom. So Christ is, is at the beginning, throughout, and at the end of the entire gospel message. So the message of Christ is not diminished by the fact that The kingdom is the gospel. Christ's role, John chapter 10, verse 1. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls out his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he had spoken to them. Then Jesus said to them again, to make it very clear what he was talking about. He was talking uh, in, in descriptive things here. Now he said, Now he's going to be very direct about what he meant. Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. 
And if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. How do we get to the kingdom of God? There is one way, and it is through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is central to the gospel. He is the door. We see here in verse 1, you can try to find any other way, but you can't get there. There's one door. And if you try to skirt, climb up the side, maybe climb up a tree and jump on the roof, there's no other way in. You have to go through the door, and that door is Christ. John 6, 44. Verse 43, Jesus therefore answered, let's go back to verse 41. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up in the last day. So Christ doesn't even call. In, in theory here, his father calls. When Christ was here, he said, I'm the door. There's a doorkeeper. That's what he talked about in John 10. There's a doorkeeper. There's a man who manages the door, and there's the door. Christ is, he said, I am the door. Whoever the father calls, the doorkeeper allows to pass through the door, calls to come in. So we see the process here. Christ is part of the process. He's part of, he is the way. He is the way. We, we read back in Acts 1 about the, him asking them to tarry until the, the time. Then they followed that up in verse 6, at, verse 6 to 8. You can just write this down. Again, about is this the kingdom? His answer was, is the kingdom here now? Is this, is this the time? His answer was, it's only the, the Father knows. It's not for you to know. So if Christ, is sent, if Christ is the gospel, wouldn't he know? But at that point, he didn't know. He said, it's not for you to know. The Father knows. The Father knows. Acts chapter 4. Verse 8. Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means has he been made well? Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, again, all of these various aspects of this message of the gospel, by him this man stands here before you whole. So this man has been physically healed and spiritually healed. He is made whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Christ's part in the gospel 
is as central as they come. He is, he is the reason. He is, how, he is what made this all possible. His sacrifice. But he is not the end point. Christ can't be the gospel because the gospel is the good news of, of what? Good news of Christ? The description of what it becomes is the, we need to know the end point of the gospel. Christ is the door. The door leads to somewhere. We walk through the door, which is Christ, to where? To the kingdom of God. That's why when we read in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, then in the end, he will present this kingdom to his father. Because that is the end of the gospel message. That is where the story comes to an end and a whole new one begins. So the gospel is about the kingdom of God. How we get there, through whom we get there, what we need to do to participate in this kingdom. And that is why in 1 Peter 2, Peter describes us this way. Peter describes the saints this way. Verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who, have not, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. If we continue on this path and walk through that door into the kingdom, we are a royal priesthood. That is kingship, and that is oversight. That is part of our tasks here as part of the kingdom of God. If Christ was the be-all and end-all of, end of the gospel, if Christ is the gospel message, not the process by which we go through to the kingdom, Christ is the good news. What does that mean? The kingdom of God is the good news. We can see the difference. The good news is Christ, or the good news is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, it, 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 just, it just grammatically makes, it, sound, it sounds like it makes more sense. The gospel is Christ, leaves us with why. The why is the kingdom of God. It definitely starts with Christ, but it doesn't end with Christ. It ends with the kingdom of God. And again, if he was the gospel, shouldn't he know when he would return? He didn't know because it was in God's hands. And there is so much more to the story than Christ. It starts with Christ. He is the door. He is central to the gospel. But again, the gospel is of the kingdom of God from his words, from his mouth, if nothing else. Salvation and Christ, all very true and very vital elements of, to the gospel. But the missing part of much of what the world's understanding of what the gospel is, is the end result that is never talked about. Salvation is the process, not the end result. The end result is the kingdom of God. That's why we're all here. Because we don't want to live in this mess anymore. We want to live in a society that lives God's way. Where there is peace, where there is mercy, where there is justice, 
where there is life everlasting. That's why we're here. That's why we sacrifice our wants and desires of this world because we have our eyes on the next. Why is that important to understand that the gospel is of the kingdom, not of specifically the various elements that make up the gospel? The gospel is of the kingdom of God. It is made up of many, many elements that we've talked about because it forms the basis for understanding other key aspects of biblical truth. When we understand that the gospel message is of the kingdom and all that it means, it, answers quite, it is easier to understand the answers to questions like what happens after death. What happens after death? Is there a hellfire? Do we go to heaven? Do we have an immortal soul? Why were we born? When we understand that the gospel, which forms the basis of our faith, is the process by which we attain the kingdom of God through the sacrifice of Christ, through the mercy that God, God extends to us where he, he, he washes away our sins and applies the, the shed blood of his son through the salvation process so that we can participate in the kingdom. That's, 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 that's the, the end reality. Why were we born? It answers all of these questions. It, it helps us understand the elements to the answers of all of those questions. The answers to these questions all drive off of and are more easily understood when we know that the full meaning of the good news is of the kingdom of God and the process by which we gain access to it. It also, understanding that this good news, that the, what, what we base our faith around is the kingdom of God, also helps define what we do in our day-to-day lives today. Matthew 24. Let's go through a little bit here about how understanding that the kingdom of God, for the last five or ten minutes here, how understanding the kingdom, the kingdom of God is the end result, is the, 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 the destination of the gospel message. Helps define what we do in this life. Matthew 24. And familiar scriptures, but seen in the light of understanding that the kingdom of God is the gospel message. And all that it entails helps us understand our part in it. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all, in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. That this message, we are required to preach it as a witness. We are required as partakers of the same gospel message to announce it. That there is a better world. That when we are hit with all that we see around us, whether it's it's a poor economies, wars, Islam, that we know, we believe, because it is central to our faith, that it doesn't matter. There is a kingdom waiting for us. We have peace. Why do you have peace? I'm free to tell you. There's a better world. You don't need to live like this. There's a better world. We already read John 6:44 that no man can come to Christ unless the Father draws him. We understand that helps us understand our role in evangelizing. We preach and tell as many people that want to hear it that there's a better way, but we don't do the calling. God calls, and God calls people according to his timeline. So we understand that our job is to preach. Our job is not to call. Our job is to preach, and then in Matthew 28, 
And again, preach. Gospelizing is really announcing the good news. Telling people what we know to be true. That there's a better world out there in the future awaiting us. God calls them. And then, verse 19, we make disciples of all nations and baptize them and teach them to observe all things. So as a, as a church family, as a community, a church community, we are here to receive those whom God calls to teach, to baptize them into the faith, to make disciples, to, to walk together towards to, in, in, this, in this journey here. The church is there to receive and teach. Teach what? This. And when we re- see everything that is in here, it all points us towards this kingdom. It all points us towards there. We don't have time to, to go through it, but everywhere you turn, we see it in light of that we are walking towards this kingdom of God. By reference, well, I'll list a few references and we'll talk about them quickly here. Matthew six nineteen to 21. And, and in light of this, remember what we're talking about here. How understanding that the kingdom of God is, is the basis of our faith and all that, all that this gospel makes up, which includes Christ, which includes his sacrifice, his salvation, his resurrection, all towards the kingdom of God. It defines how we live our life. For instance, in Matthew 6, we lay for ourselves up treasures in heaven. We're not worried about building wealth on this earth. We are worried about taking care of our heavenly treasures. Romans 12, verse 1 to 2, to be transformed and live a life of service to God and his people. When we understand that it is not about your next raise or your next promotion, that that doesn't supersede this life, we can participate. We need to participate. We need to make a life for ourselves. But choosing that over following God is when the rubber meets the road. And we live a life transformed and a life of service to God. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20, that we are ambassadors for Christ. When I leave here, I am still an ambassador of Christ, even when none of you are watching me. And I need to, that defines understanding that I'm an ambassador of this kingdom, defines how I live my life. That when none of you are watching me, I need to act as if all of you are watching me. Even when you're not there. Philippians 3 verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. If I am forced to break the Sabbath to keep a job, I keep the Sabbath because that's what, I, that's what defines me. So it may be a tough choice, but it becomes no choice at all when we understand that this kingdom defines who we are. James chapter 1 talks about the purpose of trials and not to become overwhelmed by them. Understanding this gospel of the kingdom Helps us understand trials. Helps us understand sickness. That I need to learn something. That God is always with me. That he will never forsake me. So we don't get as stressed out or as depressed or as saddened by trials and sickness as others who don't have this hope. It helps to, we can see here how it defines our everyday life. It defines everything that we do. Leviticus 23 Understanding that the kingdom of God is, the, is the, the end result of the gospel, the destination of this entire gospel message, is explained by our worship system, the Sabbath and the Holy Days. 
It helps understand why we keep the Jewish days. Because they're not Jewish days. They're God's holy days. They help define his entire plan. That start with the sacrifice of Christ and end with the kingdom of God. Everything we read about in 1 Corinthians 15 is defined by the holy days. And we are reminded on a weekly basis through Sabbath keeping. And what we read about in 1 Corinthians 15 around verse 22 that all have their timing. That we don't need to save the world now. We preach, again, we reviewed everything that is, is our, our, our requirements to do. We preach, we announce the gospel message, we be there to receive those God is calling. But God isn't trying to save everybody now. He's got a plan, as defined by his holy days, that if, if it becomes just us, then it's just us. And God has a plan for everybody else. We could read the entire Bible and see how it revolves around the gospel of the kingdom of God, and our part in it. Can we see now how our belief system rests upon the full meaning of the gospel and our faith that it is absolutely true? There are many aspects to the gospel, but they all point to and culminate in the kingdom of God. Salvation, peace, grace, repentance, justification, glorification, they are all part of the message and, and the means by which we can participate in this kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Christ, salvation, repentance, uh, resurrection, glorification, just of, they're, they're all part of this message. And they define how we participate, how we can partake of this great and glorious kingdom. But the story of the Bible, the history of mankind, begins and ends with the kingdom of God. Again, very basic, sounds basic, but fundamental and something we can never forget. The message of God starts with the kingdom and ends with the kingdom because that is the foundation of the gospel message. Genesis 1. Let's go to the beginning. Genesis 1. Here is the goal. Why are we here? Why? Why? Verse 26. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let us make a, a people like us, and let us give them rulership over our creation. That's a kingdom. That is a kingdom. Revelation 22. The result. The goal. The beginning. The result at the end. Revelation 22. And he showed me, verse 1, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Genesis 3. How do we get them back? The leaves of the tree of life will heal the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. 
They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need, they need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. We are so blessed to know the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Study it, know it, and live your lives by it. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.